So there's definitely a crossbreed that's happening. So hospitality for me not is not necessarily restaurants and hotels anymore. There's just creating these destinations that people will gravitate to and have a great experience and be part of the community. Welcome to Surviving Hospitality. Today, we celebrate our 10th episode with Jenny Yip Kim, owner of Jen and Juice. Through conversation with host Elisa Lozano, Jenny describes how she stumbled on restaurant work in the beginning of her hospitality career through modeling, her experiences around the world with some of the best known trailblazers in the industry, and shares how she created her own company that allows her to focus on her favorite parts of operations. We absolutely loved hearing more about the woman behind the business, and we think you will too. Join us. Okay, super excited to welcome Jenny Yip. She is a hospitality consultant and founder of Jen Juice Hospitality. Thanks for joining us today. Excited. So Jenny and I connected virtually, but we, I'm super excited to have this newfound connection. She is actually originally from Toronto and by way of, it sounds like New York and Miami and several other places in the world, you finally landed and created a home in Dallas. So we'd love to hear more about that and welcome. Thank you so much. Of course. Uh, we usually start out all of our episodes with learning what our guests are drinking. So what do you have this morning? I have chai tea. Oh, love it. Yeah, I'm a tea lover. I don't drink coffee. That's a really great thing, I think. It's very easy to have coffee all day, every day, once you're a coffee drinker. (laughs) I'm sure. What kind of chai do you enjoy? I like this brand called Prana. Prana chai. I think I may have tried it once. Yeah, they could be. I don't remember if they're out of Brooklyn. And I found them at a coffee fest trade show and I just fell in love with them. And it's easy. You just scoop it. You add milk or water and you're good to go. Sounds lovely. It's a little uh, little indulgence in the morning for sure. So tell me a little bit about what brought you into hospitality. Well, I am originally from Toronto and... I got to New York in the late 80s and I got there via work and I was actually a model in Toronto. I got a contract to come to New York City and be a model. And my my parents have been vacationing in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, growing up from Toronto. Every summer we would pick a New York American destination and we would get there and we were just fell in love with everything about America. And when we got to New York, we're like, wow, the food is amazing here. This is really good. So really, I probably at 13 years old, we started coming. And I thought, you know, one day I would love to end up here and just sort of live in America. And what would that look like? And then fast forward a few years later, I got a modeling contract and I ended up in New York and then Paris, then Tokyo, then London. And I stayed in the business for five years. And then sort of with all my travels, I really fell in love with food and all these great cheap eats around the world because we didn't have a lot of money. 
growing up or even traveling as a starving model. Even though you got sent to places and you did your work, we would always live in these apartments and we would have a very minimal amount to spend. So we'd find all these great cheap eats. And so that's sort of, you know, my love of, of food started. And then sort of, you know, the early 90s, everyone always mentioned that, you know, like the way to, you know, make extra money and also see see your cities is really to work in restaurants. And I never even thought about that. So I had a friend who I met who was a model. She's like, oh, I'll introduce you to be a hostess somewhere. And that somewhere ended up being the Royalton. And that's sort of how the whole career started. Wow. And they're like, oh, let me introduce you to Brian McNally and Ian Schrager and Jonathan Moore at the time. And this was like in 92. And they said, most of the time they were hiring actors, actors were waiters and models were hostesses. And it was just very, it was the norm of New York City back then. A little bit different today, but that was, yeah, that was the norm back then. So it sounds like you had a lot of beautiful people in dining rooms. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Especially working at the Royalton. So at the Royalton, it was Restaurant 44. And that was sort of like the start of... Uh, power lunches with Condé Nast and uh, literary writers, HBO, which was a, who was around the corner, models. I mean, people were dining here for lunch and breakfast. It wasn't a dinner destination for, for this crowd because Condé Nast was around the corner. And it was just a sort of like an orchestra of beautiful people and beautiful music every day. And I'm like, is this really what hospitality is all about? But then I realized later, it's the magic that Ian Schrager brings and Brian McNally and the connections and the people and the conversations besides great design because Philippe Stark was the designer of most of Ian's hotels up until that point. So it's very different than hostessing at a diner in New York. I sort of, you know, got introduced from one model to this place and they're like well why don't you you know if you want a part-time job they'll hire you as a part-timer and I said okay and so that's sort of how I started and I would dip in and out yeah I would dip in and out of my travels while I model use New York as a base and I would come in and maybe work for a few weeks or a few months and they were super flexible they were super sweet and it was really a great time and that's sort of how they all introduced me to like well eventually if you want to do this as a full-time job, we'll always have a, a spot for you. And I sort of like, you know, I've always had great relationships with like great mentors and great entrepreneurs, and we've always kept in touch. I mean, that's in a way how I got, got to New York as well. You know, I got discovered on the streets of New York. They said, where are you from? We'll introduce you to an agency and at the age of 13 and they're like here's my card if it's ever if you ever think about modeling in New York give us a call and that's sort of how it all like everyone was very legit along the way right through right through my career is very interesting I'm like I don't know if this is luck or this is just the way it is sounds like a really amazing experience it's that's really awesome it's a unique story I think and at what point did you feel like you were ready to make the jump 100% into hospitality? Yeah, I was just traveling so much. I mean, the way that I was assigned to model was to do fashion shows. So Fashion Week happens 
few times a year in five different markets, Tokyo, Milan, London, Paris, New York. And you need to go as a fashion model to these cities every season for spring, summer, for fall, winter. And that was the job. So we got shuttled around all the time and I still maintain that that very strong group of friends from that era. And then it came a point after almost five years, I was like, you know, I would love to just stay in one place and just really stay in one place. And what, and what, what could that look like? What would I do? So when I came back, you know, I took on more shifts and really Jonathan Moore, who is a very dear friend. He is the owner of Bond Street, ex-Republic that had opened their Union Square. And he's one of my best friends. And he came from real hospitality school and he taught me so much. And he was like, why don't you do this full time? Why don't you come and learn this? I'll teach you. And he kind of like took me under his management wing and, and gave me opportunities within the company. And he was our director of food and beverage at that time. And just also that connection of meeting all these like five key people that worked at the Royalton or, her, or who were partners, owners between Ian Schrager, Brian McNally, Michael Callahan, who is the owner of Indochine. He was working there, Jonathan Moore, even to Philippe Stark, the designer, to Arnold Chan, the lighting designer. I kept in touch with all these people who are still friends today. And that's how this whole network sort of started. So back to Jonathan, he's like, stay with me. I'll teach you management. And so I started weekend managing, then morning management, nighttime management, and then stayed within the company and got transported to Miami to open the Delano Hotel at that time. So that was like in 1995. So I decided to just stay with them, learn from all of them, because I learned so much of what hospitality was for me at that time. And I thought, wow, it's all like this. You get transported from the Royalton to the Delano. You're like, oh my God, this is like an adult playground of hospitality. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Alice in Wonderland for all these New Yorkers that come here on weekends, seasonal travelers. I'm like, is this what hospitality is about? It's amazing. I love the design. I love the food. I love teaching the staff. I like setting up room service. I just like to be in the company of all these great minds. And it was, I thought that that was the norm and that was great. That's amazing. And so do you feel like you had skills that you learned in the modeling industry that you were able to use in hospitality or does it all kind of meld together for you? It's still a people service business that we're in. I would say probably Gaining confidence. I mean, little girl come from Toronto, then moved to New York and agency had to sign to be my guardian. And you really learn a lot quickly and you learn to be independent very, very quickly. And I guess your radar goes up of who to trust very quickly. And luckily I had really good mentors along the way who are still friends today. So yeah, Molly definitely helped, definitely build that confidence and traveling and being in strange places and meeting people that you have to sort of naturally trust or run. (laughs) Absolutely. Super great skills to build, especially at such a young age. It explains your, your presence. And so fast forward a little bit, you had the opportunity to work with some really big names in the industry at a time that was definitely 
very unique, I would say, in the history of New York hospitality and probably the other cities that you were in. And so what would you say is the biggest moment of your career during that span of time that you really remember as like being super life-changing? It was definitely the opening of the Delano. And this was before I started Gen Juice. When I got there, there were just a few of us. We had an opening team and we, we created our own food and beverage team to be transported down to open the Delano's Delano Hotel Food and Beverage Department. And when we got there, we had to figure it out. We didn't have a manual. We're not a corporate company. I thought, well, well actually, I had, I had no expectations because I didn't come from hospitality at all. When I was living in Paris, I modeled in amazing hotels and service was amazing. Service was great. And I sort of didn't correlate that type of service to what we were doing at the Delano. We sort of opened. We weren't a hospitality. We weren't a Marriott or a Hilton. We were not anything with like a lot of systems. And so from the Royalton, Ian bought this hotel, said, okay, we're going to create this food and beverage destination, sort of changed the face of Miami. Because at that time in the mid nineties, Miami, Collins Avenue was not very pretty. And it was the hotel that really needed a lot of renovation. And when he got there, he had this vision and kudos to him because he had this vision that no one else saw in Miami. And we got there, Philippe, he hired Philippe Stark. He designed the entire property inside out. And we got brought down to open the food and beverage. And when I got there, I thought, wow, this is such a beautiful destination. And we're going to do what we do in New York. We're going to open a restaurant, room service, a pool bar, the Rose Bar in the lobby. There's a little like eating kitchen in the front seats, 20 people. And people will come and we'll service them as we do in New York. And let's see what happens. And so it was all very organic. And we were all a very, very tight family. We didn't know what to expect. And when we opened, it was like an alien landed in Miami Beach. People <laughs> came from around the world. People were lining up around the corner to get into this hotel. And I was like, we created magic here because you don't get this anywhere in this world. Like We had probably 1,200 people going through the lobby throughout the day. And they would go from Collins Avenue to the beach. They would have a drink. I mean, we did not have enough staff to support any of this. And it was such a huge hit for Miami, for boutique hotels, for lobby dining. Back then, who would go to a hotel and have a meal? I mean, it would be very boring. You would probably go with your grandparents or your parents. <laughs> People didn't do this. We don't go to hotels to have a meal. So he made it, they all made it very fashionable to go to a hotel. And so that's really what transpired this whole boutique hotel and made sort of boutique hotels a destination and in, in, in its own niche because of Ian's vision. And it's just amazing. So when I was there, I was like, you know, I love the whole setup. I love how we created such this 
magical destination. It was like a nightclub every day at every hour, every meal period. I mean, people loved the place. People enjoyed the food. And I, I thought if I could do this over and over, I would. And what is that job? Because I didn't really come from any corporate infrastructure of any sort, but from the Delano, I learned how to open, how to set up systems, how to create a timeline, working with architects, designers. Even though I was not part of the design, we had some say in the side stations and that was sort of our design. But even understanding what worked in design, Philippe Stark would design three-legged stools. They would always fall over, but we, we never changed them for a reason, right? And creating a pool destination. It was like every food and beverage component we had at the Delano was a destination for people who just come and meet at the pool. They'll come and meet at the David Barton gym at the time. They'll come and use the spa upstairs. Everything was curated. And this was 1994, 95. So you can you imagine what, what today is? I mean, now in today, fast forward in 2022, most hotels are doing this. Food and beverage, every curated destinations, whether you're getting a chef or a celebrity, somebody involved to curate this, it's now become a destination. But we did this almost 30 years ago. All right. So exciting. And so as a guest, it, I imagine it also raised the bar for you when you visited other places and over time saw how other things like this started to pop up. Yes. Yeah. In Miami, I guess the Raleigh was there before the Delano got there. And that was a landmark for Miami. The pool was the most gorgeous pool on earth. I think Carrie Simon was the celebrity chef there at the time, who was then the celebrity chef at the Plaza with Ivanka Trump when she owned that. So when we open and the face of hospitality at that point, it was evolving. And I would say that the people found each other at that moment and created like minds for each other and like-minded destinations. Outside of Miami, I sort of came back to New York and what was popping up? We came back, the Paramount was open already. Philippe Stark had designed that. The Morgans was open already with Andre Putman. I can't think of Chateau Marmont was around then. I mean, we didn't have W hotels. There was no standard. There was no Soho House at that time. Maybe Soho House in London could have been open at that time. What I did see in my travels through modeling was a lot of these food and beverage destinations that I saw in Paris at the time was exactly what sort of Miami was come to think of it. When I was living in Paris, I used to go to this nightclub called Lark and Prince owned it. Prince was living in Paris at the time. We would all go there. Funny enough, my modeling agency in one of my modeling agencies in Paris, Iman was part of our agency and she was dating David Bowie at the time. And they would have parties at Bandouche, which is a very big nightclub, sort of like your equivalent to the Boom Boom Room. Okay. I'm here in New York. And then even Lenny Kravitz at the time had a restaurant in Paris. So now thinking back, probably a lot of this was resonating already in London and Paris in the 90s. I didn't see, see it so much in America. And I think Barry Sterling with a W 
I mean, Ian definitely started that whole boutique hotel and then evolved it into the Mondrian and then formed Morgan's Hotel Group. I think Barry Sterlich and them came along thereafter. So you're probably right. It was Europe that I first started to see a lot of this and maybe had exists already because I remember we used to go to, I think it was Marco Pierre White. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? He was a chef yeah. in London. Yep. And he was a destinational restaurant tour at that time. So, and then actually I did uh, go to Charlie Trotter's place in Chicago. So there was, you know, everywhere where I modeled, come to think of it, because I did spend some time in Chicago to model, I did find these <laughs> decimal, I guess, mission star places to dine at. I don't know. It was, it, you're right. <laughs> it was finding these food and beverage destinations that really made an impact to community, culture, cuisine, yes. like the Korean like entertainment. Really exciting time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All of these changes and then also just timing. And I think the industry has changed so much, but lots of really special things that happened all over. Mm -hmm. And what a unique experience that you were able to hop around and see that in several different versions. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so true. I've actually never thought about it, but (laughs) you pulled it all out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And so now you're part of a generation that is, I imagine, still a huge part of the game. And I imagine with your clients and collaborating with new projects, you're still very much involved while still seeing new trends and new things pop up. So I guess thinking back, what made you want to start that to begin with? And are there pieces that you miss from operations? Mm. <laughs> well, back to the Delano and starting Ginger's Hospitality. After that experience, I decided if I could create a company and do this over and over and over, what would that look like? And where would I go? How did it begin? And really, it's the connections that I made and the people that I met at that time who then introduced me to other hoteliers, other developers from the Delano. I decided to start Gender's Hospitality, started it with an LLC and then reached out to friends and said, you know what, I want to do what I, I want to sort of peel back the onion. I want to get back to the layers of like working with these great designers and these visionaries and hoteliers and be in the beginning process of conceptualizing and developing a place. Is there a position? Is there a job for something like this? All I knew at that time was, okay, if I can be my independent person and work with visionaries, where can I find that job? (laughs) I I, I didn't know. So just through my contacts and people, I met this gentleman called Arnold Chen, and he is the lighting guru of retail, hotels. He's probably done all the lighting in all of Philippe Stark's projects in the 90s and the 2000s, Alan Yao's restaurants, Calvin Klein stores at the time, every retailer, fashionable retailer that you know, he's done the lighting for. And I didn't think that lighting was, of course, that important, but it is very important in creating the ambiance of all of these spaces. One can design, but then you've got to really set the tone of lighting. We became very good friends and he introduced me after the Delano 
to Christian Lieg, who is a French designer who people know in America as designing the Mercer Hotel. Okay. So I got introduced to Christian through Arnold to work on a project in Bangkok. And it was to develop a five-story department store, very similar to Takashimaya, if you remember at the time in New York, to develop a five-story department store with food and beverage inside. And I thought, perfect. I mean, I love the whole concept process and stage with the owner, creating their vision, then developing it together, finding the chef, finding understanding the components that that go in creating these spaces between the design, the architect, chef, menus, sort of like the guest mapping experience. And I moved to Bangkok and I started this project with a retail visionaire that was hired at the time, Paul Niski. And he came from Bloomingdale's. He came from retail background. And so the two of us created this department store that was going to revolutionize retail at that time for Bangkok and really for Thailand. And so we created, these projects are so fun when you can just find like-minded people who don't necessarily design within I mean, all designers have vision and they sort of design outside the box of the non-traditional people. Like even when we worked on this project in Bangkok, Kate Spade became very good friends of ours and she was designing curated pieces for us. And she was designing a private label line just for us. And you just meet these people, you become friends and she's going to design plateware for us. It's just like it all sort of evolves into the end product. And that's what I commend Ian for because he always has this vision he'll find these like-minded people who don't necessarily come from any background but have vision and have passion and will grow with them and I, I definitely learned a lot from him just understanding how to take care of people how to find passion in them that you're trying to like pull out and you're, you can do it. And they always gave me the confidence of you could do it. You just have to work hard to figure out the pieces to the puzzle. And a lot of this is just like a lot of chess pieces and, and putting that all together. And from there, from Bangkok, it was just back to New York, introduced me to Andre Balage, Christian Lier introduced me to Andre, Andre Balage. And then that's how I got into opening the Mercer Hotel and Mercer Kitchen met John George von Gerichten, you know, another mentor visionaire who I admire and just on and on. So just all the relationships that I have just build on the next, onto the next. And they introduced me to the next great destination that we can build together. So it's always been wonderful in that way. Well, it sounds like you haven't really had a minute to miss operations. Is that fair <laughs> to say? Yeah, I don't miss operating. I definitely love the creative side, but I do advise hotels and restaurateurs on really trying to take care of their staff. You know, we can hire people, train them, and you're done. And there's now a lot of digital that complements that in between, but you still need the human touch. I don't think hospitality will be taken over by bots and robots. I mean, that will be an accessory to some concept, but it's still the people and it's still the relationships that you need to build your business 
and to take care of your employees at the same time. And it really goes hand in hand. So no, I don't miss operations and operating 14, 16 hours a day, every day, having my own restaurants and nightclub. I don't miss that operating side, but sometimes I definitely miss the people side. Definitely. It is nice to be able to work together for one goal with your whole team that over time, as you said, you definitely grow, you bond, you form these relationships that sometimes last for years and years to come. Yes. And so as far as you talk about people in in your business, in hospitality, taking care of them. And of course, that's something that we're definitely working on with the people that we work with all the time. There have been so many changes from the time that you got started to now big conversation about workplace culture. So I guess if looking at that and how it is today versus what it was when you joined, being in a male dominated field, being able to kind of work with what you had and create your own narrative, what would be some advice that you might give to yourself all those years back then, knowing what you know now? Wow. (laughs) That's a little, (laughs) I don't know if I would change too much because a lot of what I did back then, it still resonates today. When I help clients hire their leadership team, which is your executive chef, your director of food and beverage, your general manager, it's really finding, interviewing them and finding sort of their passion in hospitality. Because I really believe that leadership, your leadership is represented by, you know, it's kind of who you hire, what they say, it's the company culture. So your GM, your executive chef has to resonate your vision. There's no buts to that. I mean, they are your walking brand. And it's so important to find these individuals, your key leadership people, and from there, create that culture. And so for me, I was, I've been GM, I've been director of food and beverage a few times, and it always starts at the top. And who you are and what you represent and how you present yourself, needs to be translated down to the dishwasher, to the busboy. They need to be working. We all need to be working together as a family. You need to, it's, it's a very, very hard job for a manager and it takes a lot of work, but you have to create a family. You have to create fun. You have to be energetic. You have to love service. You have to love people. You're the sounding board to everyone that comes through that door whether it's customers or it's your employees. So now in this speak up culture where it wasn't very apparent back then, I can always say that I've always led my team to speak. You know, even when I had my own restaurant and I had a hotel in Miami, you know, we would have our morning meetings before lunch. We would have our pre-shift meetings before dinner. And I always started with, 30 seconds from every employee, what's on your mind, whether it's personal or it's about operations, because I always felt that they need to be heard. And I think a lot of companies never did that because I hear that now more so because people are like, yeah, you know, we really need to 
encompass our employees into our culture. I'm like, well, you should have done that a long time ago because (laughs) these are the people that are on the ground for you every single day. They're customer facing. They see things that you don't. Even as a manager, you see things. I mean, there's a whole nother world below management that management will never hear, let alone ownership would never hear. And you really need to give them a voice. And I've always done that, but I think in this day and age now, I hear it more and more that companies are doing that because everyone needs to be heard. If people don't leave, there's no loyalty in working for a company if you're not heard. Absolutely. So it's it's very, very important. You know, who your managers from your execs and your leadership, it's even the managers and the the bartenders. I mean, these people are sort of like the glue to your business, especially the managerial, on the managerial level. Everyone needs to be heard and everyone needs to react to what is happening on a day-to-day, let alone reviews nowadays and the digital world. First, it has to start with your company culture and how your family sort of talks to each other every single day And because you might have an employee who has a bad day who will go on social media and ruin your business. I mean, that happens as well. So it's very important to understand what your employees are going through. I think people used to say, don't bring your luggage to, (laughs) to your work, but I don't think you have a choice. You probably spend more time at work than you do at home. It's So you want to know, you know, the background of your employees you want to know about their lifestyle. You want to understand them a little bit more every day. I mean, why hire them? You're not hiring robots. You really need to understand your people to create a great work culture. And then loyalty. I mean, that's how you're going to have employees stay with you. Yes. Because there's a lot of jobs out there. Mm. It's, it's true. And I think especially in a climate now where there have been quite a few people who, as you mentioned before, were actors or students or we're working part-time in the industry have since found other opportunities and opportunities that are likely sometimes more lucrative. So how does the industry keep up with being able to retain employees, maintain those relationships and foster those cultures so that it does feel like a great place for people to work? Yes. Yes, for sure. Some, a lot of teams now are really evaluating how they're going to stay afloat because of costs nowadays. Everything has gone up. Inflation is a real problem. Besides, as an operator, streamlining your menu, being smarter in digital, there's a lot of team building that needs to happen. Besides taking care, I mean, taking care of your employees is financially is one thing, but taking care of them on a company level, maybe giving them, besides benefits, a lot of people in hospitality never had health insurance as never had even vision dental. So even a start with that will help your employees to earn a livable wage. I mean, those days back then when I started, it was like two thirteen an hour as a waiter and waiters can take home maybe $150 to $200 in the 90s. I mean, people can still take home the same amount of money, but the times have been times are different now. People, if you're going to stay in hospitality, I always believe people who stay in hospitality eventually 
would like to have their own business. That waiter, that manager that I hired many, many years ago today, some of them have their own business. And you know that deep down, they want to aspire to that. So even for you to make them a part of your company, to give them uh, even a small percentage, even to discuss bonuses, have real evaluations every three to six months and have them incentivize really is the future of keeping your staff. You just can't hire people today and, and trust that they will just stay with you. There's a lot more, as much as when we create our businesses and concepts, I always say, okay, well, we have to think about the guest experience through and through and through and the loyalty. In the work culture, it's the same. You have to think about your employee that you're going to hire and think about them through and through. What does their life look like a year from now, two years from now? Are they graduating? How loyal will they be? Do they want to manage your role? Are they going back to school? Are they just making money to send back to Mexico? There's a lot that read. you can read people if you just ask a few questions. We had a barista at the Royalton who stayed with us for maybe 10 years, and he would make his money, send it back to Bangladesh every week. And that's how he lived. And he was there for many hours a day, every day. And so once you get to understand the people, I mean, it's real. Everybody has real problems. Everyone has someone to take care of in their lives. And you don't know until you ask. And I think now is more apparent. And now people can do multiple jobs, two remote jobs, and they don't have to work in hospitality. They don't have to come and be customer facing. Exactly. You know, there are, if you have skills, you have the internet, you have a lot of options today. It's true. I, I do think that it really does have to be a part of your core that you do love this line of work and you love the people. And I like to say all the time, it's a no brainer to take such great care of our guests, but we do often forget about each other. And so I think it's a really great thing that companies are recognizing this now. And it's it's almost like a whole new way of nurturing because we go out of our way to nurture the guests, even at the expense of ourselves sometimes, but to be able to take care of our teams in the same way and not necessarily by sacrificing or doing it in an unhealthy way, but doing it in a way when people, as you say, feel seen and heard and valued for sure. So in your day to day, what do you find to be the biggest challenge? Uh, I think now. It's really with this labor market the way it is and inflation the way it is, people, now that I'm creating newer concepts for people and we apply building business and the guest relationship through and through, and we have concepts that are very solid and quite of them are food and beverage driven with amazing experiences is how are we going to develop this with people? with your own staff and you really need to invest in your staff. And so what I'm, my, my difficulties now is educating my clients on staffing and what does that mean? Like we talk about creating a company culture, but more so for it's, it's how much will this cost? So I always go back to what is a livable wage? It's not, not a restaurant livable wage, but what is a restaurant? Well, what is a livable wage for the average person? And hiring salaried people 
really will nip a lot of your day-to-day operations and fine-tune it to make it sort of like a tighter culture in a way. Because once you have full-time salary people, and this will cost a bit more, at least your key, like we always say, okay, two or three salary people, the rest, they'll, they'll be hourly. But I think your investment nowadays has to be more because of what's happening in the labor pool. You might be hiring five to eight salary people. And these are your dedicated people that understand your culture, that can teach others, that can train others. It's going to cost a lot more in the beginning, but you will see the fruits of it later. And especially with the labor pool the way it is today, I believe you definitely need more salary people. And they don't agree. Some clients just don't agree because obviously when we're doing our revenue projections, it's not, you know, it may or may not resonate. And where there's a will, there's a way. If you want to be in this business and the way that things are costing these days, unless ownership is taking a shift, it's going to be very difficult. So investing in your employees, but investing into more full-time employees is definitely a glue to this. And it's not like even if you average out your hourly wages and these kids are working 40, I mean, some are working 60 hours a week. I mean, you do need to be fair. I mean, I think that that's a problem with the restaurant business too. And then sometimes a problem with salary people is that you have people who are on salary and then their hours are quite heavy. So you can't take advantage of hourly people. I mean, salary people as well. So there has to be a finer balance. It's definitely a learning curve, I would say, for the industry as a whole, just because it is so costly. Yes. Yes. So we've had very strong conversations. We've had very good conversations on the reality of it. It's not something that's my philosophy. It's just the reality of how much things cost, how much people need to need to live. Like, how is this employee that we're looking to hire getting to work? Are they driving? How far do they work? Are they taking the train, two trains? I mean, some employees that I know who have been traveling to Manhattan, I I would say in the past 20 years, are no longer traveling. They're saying, you know what? I can find a job closer to me. I'm not going to travel to Manhattan and an hour and a half one way. One was coming from Connecticut. I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'd rather have less pay, find someone who will be a partner together in a vision that I have. I'll be an executive chef and I would love to stay in this industry, but I would love to be a part of it by partnership after working for a restaurant for 20 years as the executive chef. So people are not really putting their foot down. They're just seeing their quality of life. They realize the kids are grown now. So what am I going to do? Still commute three hours a day? Right. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see, especially after the pandemic, et cetera, just all the different ways and new just streams of income that we can do and use the same skills for sure. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This has been so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think that people are definitely going to be a little starstruck when they listen as they should be (laughs) at this point. You're the mentor. I imagine that there are plenty of people that you're working with regularly where you're now in the place where 
you've got such this depth of experience and knowledge. It sounds as though you've been able to carve out a way to, I guess, use all the skills that you have that you're really great at and also have some fun because you're doing the things that you love. It seems like a no-brainer. I usually ask our guests, why do you still do it? Because of all of the challenges and the high stress and just so many things that we deal with on a regular basis that are very unique to our industry. But is there anything outside of what you've already shared that you feel like is so important about why you've stayed in the industry for so long? I mean, at some point you could have gone back to modeling, but you didn't. (laughs) No, I love the business because there's so many facets of it. Even though I came from hotel restaurants, even independent restaurants, I travel the world and I, I mean, Nowadays, especially during COVID, I travel the world through Instagram and there are so many amazing places around the world. And I always felt like restaurants, hotels, bars really connect people. They're the community to, they're the glue to communities, really. And people used to say during COVID, oh, restaurants are going to go away. Everything is going to go virtual and delivery. It's it's not. It's it's definitely here to stay and it's growing and people are creating destinations with the guest in mind, even if it's a play, work, live culture, or they're after close by, you may not live in it, but you might live close to it. There's so many concepts that I still have that I would love to see out there and stuff I see around the world. So I think I love it because it's so diverse. I meet developers nowadays who have a vision for a plot of land That's next to a park. I have a client who is looking to develop a live workplace next to a highway. And we would have thought, who would move here? But you can create it. People will come if it's not even buzzworthy, if it's built with intention, with care and thoughtfulness. Because a lot of these great clients now and these developers really are thinking this through and they're like, we see this happening in different cities. We see how even malls, outdoor malls, especially here like in Dallas and and in Austin have really transformed neighborhoods. And it's a safe place to be and a safe, safe place to gather. And malls are not looking like the malls that you and I grew up going to. And they're outdoor malls with a lot of entertainment, a lot of retail. So there's definitely a crossbreed that's happening. So hospitality for me not is not necessarily restaurants and hotels anymore. There's just creating these destinations that people will gravitate to and have a great experience and be part of the community. So I'll be in it for a while. Well said, well said. I'm so excited to hear about your next projects coming up and to staying in touch for sure. For sure, for sure. Well, thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon and we'll talk soon. Very good. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Surviving Hospitality Podcast, an LA consulting firm production. At LA Consulting, we specialize in accounting and human resources for the hospitality industry. Through this podcast, our goal is to inspire and share stories about our challenges and wins in the industry we love. We get real about it, share some laughs, and take a minute to remember why we do it. Surviving Hospitality is hosted by Elisa Lozano, produced by me, Michelle Rodriguez, edited by Mohamed Yusuf, original music by Phil Petrie. On behalf of guests around the world enjoying service at this moment, our deepest gratitude.